0: Hello, and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. On this week's show, we have an art special. We'll be celebrating the rich pickings of creative endeavours taking place internationally. We'll be heading to Jerusalem to visit one of the oldest art schools in the world and to find out how it's modernising with a brand new building. Then we'll be hearing from the legendary art critic Jerry Saltz about his new book and his reflections on the state of criticism in the current cultural climate. And finally, we'll be hearing from the author of Girl with a Pearl Earring about a new Vermeer exhibition. And the role the Dutch painter has played in her work and her life. So, without wasting any more time, let's get straight into it. First up on today's show, we head to one of the oldest cities to visit one of the oldest art schools in its region, Jerusalem's Bezalel Academy of Art and Design. The school has a new building, and it was designed by none other than the Tokyo-based Pritzker prize-winning architecture studio, SANA, in collaboration with local Israeli studio HQ Architects. Journalist Marissa Mazria Katz was there to see it and to talk to the school's president, Adi Stern, about his hopes for this generation of Bezalel students arts connection to politics, and what it's like to bring a school established in 1906 into the 21st century.
1: The idea of something new in Jerusalem is kind of interesting to think about, right? It's such an old city, an ancient city. And so when you're creating a building like this and when you're imagining what a building like this could be in such an ancient city, what did you want to ensure it maintained in terms of the connection to the past as well as looking to the future?
2: First, I'll say that the the original historic campus of Bezalel is in the city center. It's like 10 minutes walk from here. And it's important. It's part of the new campus because the new campus is not just the new building, the Sana building. It's an urban city campus that has few anchors in the city center within walking distance. Mentioning this because I I do know what it means to study in the city center because when I was a student, I studied here. So I still remember this experience of living very close, like a minute walk from the classroom. But thinking about old and new, yes, Jerusalem is an old city. And to some extent, a complex, a contested city. And I think what uh, what we had in mind, and and clearly what Sana designed, is a brilliant is a brilliant solution. Because as the building is so transparent, it's if even it's, it's if it's not here. Someone said it's a it's a beautiful architecture, but there's no building. When you're in the building, I think you you could have seen that. You you really at almost at every certain moment, you feel you're outside. There's no really real boundaries between the inside, the indoors and the outdoors. And it's an amazing experience. And in that respect, and the building itself is, is contemporary. It's built from uh, white concrete, uh, glass and, and metal, steel. But it blends in an amazing, uh, beautiful way with, with the historic, historic buildings of Jerusalem, which is with the yellowish Jerusalem stone. I think it's a success in that, in that respect.
1: The building itself is so transparent so that when you walk through the hallways, you really see everything that's happening in every department. How do you think that's going to affect students' work as well as the
2: curriculum? So besides the idea that I've mentioned before, the fact that you can see from the outside so the community can see into the building, there are two other aspects. One would be that when you're in the building, when you work, when you study, when you stroll through the building, you actually cannot not see the landscape, the view, you're practically outside, as it is so transparent. And in my view, this is really important because our students, to an extent, they, they kind of escape reality. They want to think, they want to imagine they are in Europe or in the States or in Tokyo, I don't know. But they are in the Middle East, they are in Jerusalem. And it, for me, it's meaningful. I'm, I'm pushing and hoping that this will encourage and, and foster local art and design. So things that are really connected to the context it's not, we're not in London or in New York. We are in Jerusalem, and it has a meaning. This is this would be one thing, and the other thing is uh, the tr- transparency within the building itself. Because when you walk through the building and you go from your department, say, to the cafeteria, or to uh, whatever, to the auditorium, you again you're not able not to see what's happening in different disciplines, other disciplines. So you would see what ha- what's happening in a, in the ceramics uh, department, or in photography, or in animation, whatever. And I believe, I hope, that, again, this will encourage the will, their interest, to work together, to just pop in into a, a workshop and say, well, what are you doing? What's happening here? Can I join? Can I do some? Can we do something together? And it's all around you because everything is so transparent. If you
1: think about why Bezalel was founded and to think about its current mission, how do you connect
2: the two? In many ways, we are still connected to the same uh, ideas, same legacy, we care a lot about craftsmanship, about traditional crafts, and we. I, I believe that you have to build on the past. You don't. It's it's a mistake to forget and to uh, turn your back to to the past. But at the same time, it's really looking into the future and working in contemporary art, design, and architecture. But the big difference, I think, might be, and I'm careful here, but it might be that we see or I see ourselves now as uh, above all as an educational institution, more than a vocational school. It's about really education. It's about training young artists, designers, architects who not only will be great designers, but also will be become responsible, engaged citizens and uh, people who understand the, the context of, of the world. They, they understand the responsibility they have as creatives, as designers or architects or, or artists, and they can use and they want to use their skills and their talent in order to to make, to make create an impact and to make the, the, a, a better world. I don't think it's a unique idea for Bezalel. It's in a way the zeitgeist in design schools, but I think doing this in the Middle East, in Israel, and specifically in Jerusalem, is a big statement. It's uh, it's unlike doing this in New York or London.
1: So it's 2023, the campus is open for business, and you've overseen this tremendous change. How would you say the Betzalel student is in 2023 versus what it was, let's say, when you came on board seven years ago? Is it a different kind of person, especially just to keep in mind the way you talked about the silos being kind of removed from the way that this building has been designed.
2: I truly hope so, but it's a long long journey, and I'm not sure. Things are happening slowly. I don't think this is happening so quickly, but I I hope that to some extent, uh, yes, there is a change, or there will be clearly a change in terms of breaking the silos and creating more and more uh, inter- and multidisciplinary work. I don't think I have to st- to state that this is the future or this is the present. I think it's very clear that uh, and students and ba- um, graduates, alums are moving from one discipline to uh, to the other all the time during their professional life, and they they stay in one job for I don't know a year or two, then move on. It's not it's unlike nothing like it used to be. So in that respect, I think. I hope this is changing and that we are preparing them in the right way for the future. But in my view, the more important aspect would be the educational aspect, uh, which I've mentioned before. And to tell you frankly the truth, I'm not sure it's done. I'm not sure that a student that is finishing or uh, graduating now, as opposed to seven years ago, whether he or she are more uh, opinionated more engaged in society in politics understanding uh, their role in society more than they they used to um, i hope i hope but i'm not sure uh, the mission is uh, accomplished yet I, I surely can say that it's very different from what used to be here when i was a student like 20 30 years ago there's absolutely no question about it uh, at the time it was very extremely market-oriented, it was, again, I did graphic design, it was all about working for the client and for profits. It's no longer the case. I think that designers in all disciplines understand their potential and their ability to make the world better and to work for other it's fine it's okay to work for clients but you can do other things in parallel and you can work for uh, for ngos or for ideas or uh, for you you can you should protest you should express your view it's also important it's one thing that we do we push students or at least my view is that we have to push them into uh, politics not in a sense that we tell them what to think not at all but we do think that they need to be engaged it's, everything is political, art making is political, design is political, architecture clearly is political. It's a political act, you have to be aware of that.
0: Many thanks to Marissa Mazria-Katz for that report from Jerusalem. Now, the Pulitzer Prize-winning art critic Jerry Saltz has, by his own description, forged an unlikely path to become one of the best-known art critics in the United States. He hadn't written a single published word until he was 40 years old, when he was working as a long-haul truck driver but he became senior art critic for The Village Voice before being appointed in 2006 to his current role at New York magazine. And it's his own personal history, as well as that of the art of the 21st century, that form the subjects of his latest book, Art is Life, Icons and Oconoclasts, Visionaries and Vigilantes, and Flashes of Hope in the Night. He spoke to Monocle's Thomas Lewis, who began by asking him, quite rightly, to unpick the book's title.
3: In a way, what this is, is a history of the 21st century in art. As told by a trench critic, me, who accidentally and on purpose strapped himself to the mast of the art ship and seeing 25 to 30 shows a week in New York, where I live and I write weekly and now daily on Instagram. When I write weekly, it's for New York Magazine seeing 25 to 30 shows a week. And somehow what I was able to glean by being in the middle of this incredible tectonic shift of art was an up-close witness. We all have to understand, anybody listening to this in any country will understand that all the art made in the 21st century was not made under anything like normal circumstances. From the beginning, in the United States, at least, where I'm based, it starts with the contested election. It then goes to 2001, when all the world was entertaining the bizarre topian notion that we were, A, living at the end of history, and that history was all going to arc towards the democratic, and, two, the context of no context— the idiot dream that everything was happening to everybody everywhere in the same way at the same time, all of that to finish. Even if your listeners are making just stripes and squiggles, pretty still lives or portraits, the deep content of now, of those contexts, of this time, I see it in your work. You do not have to fret that your work is relevant or political enough. In fact, usually the most obvious art is the least art-like and the least useful. Mystery has always been one of the secret burning bushes of art. And that's the story this book tells by me from my one little bizarre seat of not leaving New York that often. I think that art changes minds and minds change other people's lives. In that sense, art is life. For those reasons, I use what might seem too crunchy a new age title as art is life because to me it is. And in that context then, Jerry,
4: would you say that the way the way that you look at art, the way that you see a piece of work, has that changed over time, would you say? And if so, how?
3: For many decades, I would go, I, I like this or I don't like this. What do you think to the person next to me? And the minute you hear what another mind is thinking, you've doubled what the work is. Uh, not a 100% of the time, it's shit you never thought of. And in my dumb book, Art is Life, I recount scores of those instances and, again, how the synchronicist mind, that is like hearing a song, reading a line, bumping into somebody while you're looking at something, contributes to what you are seeing and what has been seen. And finally, I would say to remember, art is never the same. Your Hamlet and my Hamlet are different. That's what great work of arts are. When you just are reading the wall label that tells you to see Ferguson, Missouri, it's never different. It's always the same, and everybody has the same photograph. To me, that's illustration and commercial art. Nothing wrong with it. But don't be intimidated. Tell yourself the wildest stories. You can't prove a Vermeer is better than Norman Rockwell. Art, my loves, is 100% percent subjective and that's the beauty of it it's the most advanced operating system our species has ever devised to examine and probe consciousness last year jerry several artworks at, at museums
4: around the world were targets for for climate protesters you wrote several responses to each of those incidents at the at the time they weren't of course the first time that art's been been used as a vehicle for protest against something else but forgive me if this is a particularly you know grand way of putting this but you know in your mind is it ever okay to for example throw a bowl of watery mashed potatoes or the contents of a can of soup at a work of art in the name of protest
3: well i thought the most creative one was the man that tried to glue his head to the mona lisa or glue his head to something what was it It was Vermeer's The Girl with the Pearly Ring, I think. Yes, I was pretty struck by that. And nobody in their right mind would say a painting, a a canvas smeared with paint, no matter who did the smearing, is more important than the coastline of Norway. Nobody will ever say that. The problem is if you ask the question, Tomas, that you just asked of me, and you do it in public... I'm immediately placed in the position, and this happened to me. Articles were written about me, then about being complicit, compliant, part of the problem. Jerry Saltz doesn't want to address the climate. I'm always for a critic getting spanked publicly, right? It always makes everybody feel good when people hate critics. I love it when other critics are attacked. Instead of doing something, we get to click like and write a nasty comment to Jerry. So really what the art world is doing is commenting on the performance rather than what the performance was trying to address. If they wanna keep doing it, they're gonna keep doing it. It's a nightmare, it's, it's a monstrosity and a deformity that these children are being brought into. Um, and whatever they do, I'm not gonna say it's wrong. I hate that one form of beauty is attacking another, but I'm not here to tell other people how to get through the climate problem. I predict that this year, a work of art will be not destroyed, but severely damaged. These are viral attempts. It's already become a caricature of itself. The shows will become far too expensive to mount or ready with the insurance. If you owned a Van Gogh, in your family. Would you loan it to a major museum right now? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The insurance, the loans are going to stop. The security apparatus in museums is already, I was just in a communications department of a major museum. You cannot believe the fortunes they're having to already pour into it. And this is money that they cannot go to programming anymore. There's going to be limited attendance, just a nightmare. And I understand the climate is to cause the Trumps all, but think about it, kids. And maybe finally,
4: Jerry, with, with what you just said in mind, I wonder if there's a sense you have that curiosity itself is is almost a more sort of fraught place to be at the moment. You can post something online a genuine question, perhaps a simple one that maybe falls a little off the beaten path and suddenly there's a furious big response to that. I wonder whether just simply asking the question has become, felt like, a a more dangerous thing
3: to do at the moment. We have left an era of criticism. I am one of the last, not the best, not good even. That means critics who write what they see And what they think of what they see and try to put it in context and say, why, this one is better than that one, that one isn't that good, and this one might be a development, that one might be derivative. Roberta Smith, my wife, does it, who I think is the greatest living art critic. We live in an age where everyone likes everything. I believe that being critical of art is a way of showing art respect. What's happened is what Thomas said, is people are a bit afraid to express simply curiosity. What would happen if in Simone Lee's installation at Venice this summer, I had not known, because I made it my business to know, where some of those Africanized figures came from? What would happen if I got it wrong? Does the artist own the meaning of their work? I would argue, frankly, and this is going to be controversial, my wife says this, she taught it to me, that they do not own the meaning of their work. If Jasper Johns says this was about a beach in Georgia and you take it as being about a form of reproduction in America or about gay men, then that's what it is for you. You are reading yourself. However, there's good news. A different kind of writing has come up in the last few years that I would call our writing, our journalism. That is, writers putting artists on their shoulders and lifting them up. That is, if you're going to write on the Simone Lee show, you give no real opinion of it, to me, I'm looking for the moisture, the wetness the, the, of opinion, but that's not there anymore. Everything's good, so that's assumed. And there's a lot of explaining and valorizing and biography and autobiography. I guess for now what I've learned to couple your two great questions in that essay together is that I had to learn how to see different too.
0: Jerry Saltz, senior art critic for New York Magazine, speaking to Monocle's Thomas Lewis there. And Jerry Saltz's latest book, Art is Life, is published by Riverhead Books and it is out now. <laughs> And finally, on today's show, the largest ever exhibition of Johannes Vermeer has opened in Amsterdam. The Rijksmuseum has brought together most of the 17th century Dutch painters' works from all over the world. I spoke to author Tracy Chevalier about the exhibition on her return from Amsterdam. She wrote the historical novel inspired by one of Vermeer's paintings, Girl with a Pearl Earring. Tracy, it's uh, wonderful to have you on the show. There are Vermeer aficionados and then there are people whose kind of world has been turned upside down in a very happy way by the Dutch master. First things first, what do you make of the Rijksmuseum's staging of these beautiful little pictures?
5: It is an incredible show. I don't think we're going to see the like of it again. The curators have really wisely allowed Vermeer to set the aesthetic so there are very few Vermeer paintings in the world that we know of. They estimate that he may be painted 45 to 50 in his lifetime, but there are only 37 that we know of, and the show has 28. And when you think of 28 paintings, is isn't very much for a large exhibition space, and yet they didn't cram them all into a few rooms. They've allowed the paintings to breathe, so you can walk into a room and there's one painting. You walk into another room, there are two paintings. It's uh, There's tons of space around them. The walls are painted these very quiet, dark colors. And from them, the paintings just sing. They glow. You walk in and they absolutely glow. And having so much time, so much space around each painting gives you more time to look at them more carefully. And I was just blown away. I thought it was a wonderful marriage of an aesthetic with the paintings themselves. And the, I, I have to hats off to the curators and the designer. They did a wonderful job.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds amazing. And I've seen some shots of of the setting up of the show and of the show itself. And that and the Reichs Museum does this so well. It's my favorite museum in the world. And as you say, the staging of this just looks sort of it allows those small paintings to become epic in that setting and their use of kind of wall colours and all the rest of it the paint job makes kind of Pharaoh and Ball look like Barbie the movie doesn't it I mean they're very <laughs> they're very uh, they love a bit of gunmetal grey and a bit of uh, dark damask don't they at the Rijksmuseum
5: they do but it works it really works and also they've installed sort of floor to ceiling curtains in parts of uh, in between the paintings so that it it softens the space it muffles it so that it's not harsh sound everything is is very tranquil as Vermeer paintings are it's
0: calm it's mysterious and f- for you Tracy what is the quality of, of Vermeer's Work itself. I mean, we've, we've talked about the staging of this show, the sort of masterful staging of this show at the Rijksmuseum and the sparingness of how they've been arranged and, and the sort of confidence of that hang. But the paintings themselves, how do they speak to you? I know that for so many to be grouped together, three quarters of the Vermeers in existence to be grouped together is such a rare thing a once in a lifetime, well, perhaps once in history kind of opportunity to see them all. After su- looking at such a survey, all in the same set of rooms, does the same quality, sort of those same qualities that you fell in love with, bear, bear themselves out when they're all grouped together?
5: Yes. And I was relieved that they didn't disappoint. I, you know, you you can start to think, have I overreacted? Uh, have, I, have I said too much about Vermeer? Am, am I holding him up when he shouldn't be? But actually they definitely hold up and they're even more than the sum of their parts i think i think what is so compelling about vermeer are the is the quiet mystery of them is how beautifully he paints light and color and also how beautifully he paints mystery somehow he's managed to make women doing things domestic things in this one corner of a room that he paints over and over again he somehow manages to to elevate this pouring milk, or reading a letter, or putting on a necklace of pearls, and or playing a lute. It, he somehow makes it magical and important. And I I think that we can we often feel when we're looking at them that we're spying um, on these women that that actually we're being privileged to be able to see them doing something that they're not expecting us to see. And so most of the time, they're not looking at us. Sometimes they are. But there's this feeling of a curtain being pulled back. And in some cases, literally, there's a curtain painted in the painting pulled back. And it's revealing this very tender, intimate moment that we are being privileged to see. And even having these paintings in a, a more public setting hasn't taken away from that wonderful intimacy and mystery.
0: And that's it's a lovely kind of analogy, that idea of the curtain being pulled back, that sense of intimacy, that sense of sort of eavesdropping almost on a private moment is exactly what The Girl with a Pearl Earring is as a painting Before you wrote the novel and you fell in love with the painting or the picture, the postcard, I believe it was for you, tell us actually about how you first laid eyes upon that fateful image for you. I was visiting my
5: sister in Boston and I walked into her apartment. I was 19, I think I walked into her apartment and she had a poster of the painting of Girl with a Pearl Earring on her wall and I had never seen it before. And I just stood in front of it and fell in love with it. I loved the light on her face, how beautifully he sculpts her face, her skin, the blue and yellow. It just, and so simple, so simple and effective as a painting that I, the next day I went out and got a poster of the painting myself, for me, and... I took it back and I had it with me wherever I lived after that. But it was it was only about 16 years after that first encounter that I had the idea for the to, to write about the painting. And that came about because one of the things that I find so appealing about the painting and I think a lot of people do is the mystery of what she's thinking. Sometimes she looks happy, sometimes she looks sad. I don't know how old she is. She has a universal look about her. We don't know what color her eyes are or her hair. It's under these this cloth. Um and her head, her face is turned in a way that you can't even tell what the really what the the shape of her face is. So there's all this she has a universal quality about her. And the look she's giving us, it suddenly occurred to me one day, she's not giving that look to us. She's giving that look to Vermeer. It was him she was looking at as he painted. So is this a look that this conflicted look of innocence and experience of happiness and sadness? What does that have to do with him? What's her relationship with him? And when I found out that they don't know who she is or any of Vermeer's models, I thought, great, I'm going to write about that. I'm going to make up a story about what the relationship between painter and model is.
0: It's uh, well, and and the rest is publishing history, right? And yeah, uh, uh, very happily. So
5: and unexpectedly, I really didn't think that people would be interested in reading about a painter from the seventeenth century and his model, but they were. And I think a lot of it is to do with the love of that painting and the curiosity, because like all great paintings, you keep coming back to it. It never resolves itself. It never that the questions it raises. Never get answered.
0: Yeah, it's it's very Mona Lisa-ish, isn't it? The the girl with the pearl earring. It's such a subtle thing. As you say, you can read innocence, seduction, any any sort of thing onto that uh, sort of half turned face. I wanted finally Tracy to ask you about something that will be studied by art historians and mathematicians, perhaps down through the ages, and that is the what we're calling the Chevalier effect. Um, (laughs) which is oh I'm (laughs) honoured there's a sort of chicken and egg situation with Vermeer who's not always been in fashion at all as a painter people duck in and out of fashion and depending upon who owns the, the lion's share of these paintings where they're displayed whether they're Uh, you know in on the walls or in storage at these great museums but you kind of go hand in hand with Vermeer now I mean it's it's you know you've obviously been to Amsterdam to see previews of of this wonderful show but you've boosted Vermeer as much as as much as that wonderful painting has given you amazing license to write such wonderful novel (laughs) where do you sit on the Chevalier effect
5: It was completely unexpected that there would be a Chevalier effect, and I try to look at it positively. I'm a little nervous at times because I did make up, you know, there's not much known about Vermeer, so we don't really know who the girl is. I've made her be a servant in the house, but she could be someone else. She could be a daughter. She could be a neighbor. uh, She could be a stranger. And also, I've based characters in the novel on various other paintings of his, and those are also speculation. So I did speculate a lot and I think it's been taken as truth and that's always a little scary. But on the other hand, I suppose the positive side of the Chevalier effect is first of all none of those the Vermeers in those institutions are ever going to be put in storage. <laughs> they are always going to be on display and that's a that's a positive thing. But also I I've loved how people have written to me and said, you know, I look at art differently now that I've read your book. I'm starting to look for the stories in the paintings and the stories behind the paintings. And it's really opened up the way I go around a gallery and relate to art. And I think that's wonderful.
0: Tracy Chevalier there, and that is it for this week. Our thanks to Tracy, Jerry Saltz, and Thomas Lewis, and of course Marissa Masria Katz. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monahan Coombs and Steph Chungu, and Steph also edits the programme. Special thanks to Emily Sands for her help editing this week, too. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Bound, thank you very much
2: for tuning in.